In chapter 12, we're going to be reading down through, I think it's verse 24. There Luke tells us that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring them out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately... The angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I read these words, as I hear this story that I've heard so many times, Lord, it strikes me how easy it is for us to think that somehow this is embellished. And maybe not even think it out loud, but maybe not take it for what it is. Take it as the truth that it shows. To to explain it away and to think that these things maybe especially do not happen in our world and so maybe don't have as much to do with our lives. Lord, with the truth of your words, of what Luke is writing to us here, would, would that truth speak to our souls this morning? Would it be something for us to hear, for something for us to know and to live out in our lives? Lord, would you be with Ed this morning as he shares the word that you have given him? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Oh, people, good morning. Just a couple, a few more than last week. I'm glad you guys could come. Um, everyone's really far apart. Are you guys mad at each other or something? It just feels like this is what a room would look like if a church was really small and everyone really didn't like each other. They were just like, I'm not sitting by that person. But uh, I'm actually, yeah, like Matt said, I'm glad that we get to be doing this on Sunday morning finally and that, and that a few of you were able to come who um, maybe have a harder time getting access to what we've been doing online. Um, it's so true that like right now during the quarantine, our ability to do church and to have church for each other seems totally limited by how much you know technology and how easy technology is for you, uh, which, is, which is really hard because um, as I talk to many people, especially people who are even considered to be high risk right now in this time, um, technology is a real struggle. So we were, we've been like hoping and trying to, praying about a way to be able to just make church more and more accessible to, to folks, both everybody out there, because uh, there's a camera in the back and that camera represents you know, the 1,500, 2,000 people that are, that are logging in now. I'm just kidding. That's way more people than are logging in. Um, but um, I also, before I jump right into this passage, uh, just kind of want to thank everybody who it takes to make this happen this morning. From Steve Werner in the back, who's running the live stream, who um, is, um, we basically just throw as much as many changes um, at the last minute as we can. We'll like set up ladders, we'll unhook things, we'll cross wires just to make sure that like uh, when he shows up here, nothing works and he has something to do. So, and he's done, he's actually, he's made it all work. Like every, you know, it's worked. So we're still trying to make it so that it's, you know, too hard, but it hasn't worked. And then the worship band as well and everybody coming and I think leading us has been so great because uh, the work that it takes to come and do that, to have a stage that's currently sort of under construction. We set this cross up just to set us up for some kind of a viral video where a cross falls over to one side because obviously it's like begging for that. So like it takes a lot of flexibility, a lot of work. They've had to reset the equipment up and then take it down and then reset it up and then take it down and then reset it up like that many times. But that's kind of what it takes right now to do church. It's like a lot of work, you know? And it makes us realize how much we how fortunate we've been for so many years to have a place to have church and to have a place that we can come and worship that can kind of be the way it is when we leave it at the end of the day. So it's making us realize a lot about what we have to be grateful for, but above all else, I think it's just the people that we have, and so it's good to have people here. Um, you know, this is a time when um, we are asking ourselves a lot about God being in control and it's when life gets totally turned around and turned upside down that we, are at, that we usually ask that question the most. You know, is God really in control? And so, for some of you, you, you constantly see indications of God's ability to be in control no matter what's going on. Like the crazier life gets, the more unpredictable life gets, the more you feel like, oh, I see how God's in control. It's so obvious. And then for others you feel like, no, it actually makes it very hard for me to see that. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm questioning and I'm doubting, why would God let this happen? Why would God let this happen? And for a lot of people in America, one of the big questions is, you know, you know why would God allow, you know, something to happen that would really make it so difficult for the church to gather together and to, and to worship? Are we supposed to show God that we love him so much that we're going to fight to do this no matter what happens? Are we um, supposed to say, um, it's, it's okay, there are other ways that we can, that we can gather and worship God through the internet, and, and, and God's big enough for that, and we, and we wonder about those things. 
what you see in the passage this morning, there are so many things to talk about in this passage. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about any of them. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm going to talk about like one or two of them, but I'm not going to talk about so many of the things because we're at this point in Acts where it's easy to get lost in what's going on, to get used to the kinds of things that are happening, and, um, and, to, and to forget how incredible these things in the church are, um, and what it was like to go through them as the people who were going through them originally. Um, In the Bible, I think there is nothing more dangerous, nothing worse, I would say, than thinking that you're in charge when God's actually in charge. Uh, You see this with leaders in the Bible, right? People who are convinced that they're in control and that God uh, isn't. And uh, because of that, uh, we see uh, at times things happen with God's people where leaders think, oh, I'm, I'm actually, uh, this God of theirs isn't real. He's not as, as big as he says he is or as they believe he is. And so uh, this person makes the usually deadly mistake of thinking, I'm the one in charge and not taking him seriously. We saw that back in Exodus when we were going through Exodus in the Old Testament. We saw that Pharaoh did everything he could to uh, try to keep the Israelites controlled. And yet what we read was that everything he did, every population control, every plan he put into place, the end was always the same. And the Israelites grew in number. And the Israelites grew and flourished. And it drove the Pharaoh crazy. Because he thought he was in control. And yet what God did was he showed in Exodus that no matter how much it might even look like someone else is is trying to control things and is controlling things, that God is going to do what God wants to do. That's what you saw in Exodus. You saw that the Pharaoh could do all the things that he wanted to do, and yet what God wanted to have happen is still going to happen. We see that in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is ministering, and we see that uh, the people who think that they've got Jesus cornered, who think that they've even been able to end him in his ministry by killing him, uh, he conquers death and he defeats it. That Jesus' followers continue to grow in, in number, and, and if anything, it's he himself who sends many of them away by making discipleship really as challenging as he does by being so honest to the people about what it means to follow him. Here, in the same way, we see uh, these Roman authorities, Herod is the representative of them right now, who is convinced that he's got to deal with this problem of the early church. And the way that he deals with it is simple. In his mind, the church is a bunch of people. It's not a thing of God. It is led by people, and so the way you deal with it is you cut the head off the snake, basically. You get rid of the leadership, and not only is he trying to actually kill this thing, this movement, but he's trying to show the Jewish people, in Jerusalem especially, that he is for them. He wants their support because there's a lot more of them. And so what this chapter, if anything, shows us above all else that we have to see before we get into anything else, is that uh, no matter what Herod tries to do, no matter how successful he thinks he may be, God ultimately is still in control. And Jesus' church is going to grow because the Holy Spirit is making this happen. The book of Acts is, is, is an account of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit's making these incredible things happen. It's not really about how great Paul is, how great Peter is, because these guys are good and they're bad and they mess up and they do great things that we would wish we could do. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit keeps making things happen. This is why when Jesus begins the church, we read in Matthew, he says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says to him that nothing's going to prevail against the church. And, and this chapter ends with, and the church would continue to grow in number, the gospel would continue to be spread, and Herod was not successful, even though he thought he was, especially by starting out and killing James. So above all else, we have to see this that it is an incredibly deadly mistake anytime someone thinks that they are in control when God is actually the one who's in control, especially when those people uh, then don't take God seriously. So this, uh, this chapter, if you pull it out of Acts and you look at it just by itself, is a chapter about people being motivated by different things. It, it is about, uh, essentially, you have Herod, who is sort of on his journey in life, and then you have these apostles and what they've chosen to do and how they've chosen to live. Each and every one of us is ultimately living for something. We're pursuing something in the way that we live. This is a, pa this is a passage about, about the passion of a few men we see. We see Peter and James and their passion lead them to death and imprisonment and to continue to preach the gospel, if at all possible, for them to do so. And what we love about that, right, what we love when we look at it is we see the passion of these people. We love passion. We love seeing it in other people. We love seeing it lived out. We, we, we are excited by it. We love stories of passion and of people who commit themselves to something bigger than just their own comfort, security, and well-being. And yet, as much as we love passion in other people, as much as we love passion in people in the church, we are so inclined to take the call of Jesus, the call of God himself for his people, and to instead of embracing it with passion ourselves, to basically play it safe. We, we take these things and we read them, and then we go, okay, that's incredible, that's nice, but my life uh, needs to look a lot safer and a lot different. Uh, that's what God wants for me, and coincidentally, it's what he wants for almost all of my friends and everybody around me as well, right, is for us to sort of play it safe. So we can admire passion from a distance and not necessarily feel convicted to live that way. Each person, each and every one of us is driven by something within us, deep inside of us, and we want that thing. We desire that thing. We are kind of for that thing. Uh, I once read a quote when I was in college, and it kind of impacted me a lot. It was like I, I would like write it in cards to people when they were like they were graduating and stuff like that. And it, it was a quote that said, "Don't don't ask what the world needs more of, and then try to be that so you can make a difference. Ask what makes you passionate, and do that, because what the world needs is more people who are passionate, more passionate people." 
I remember reading that quote and thinking, well, I am kind of sitting here going, what, what does the world want? How can I do something that's considered valuable, make a lot of money, uh, make a difference? Uh, it always changes, right, what it is that makes the difference, right? At one point, it's uh, building a company or, or maybe manufacturing. At another point, it's technology and computers. At another point, it's being good with people, right? What makes a difference? And what this quote would always remind me of is, no, what we want is people who are passionate about the things that make them passionate. We love this idea because we relate to it, and then we spend most of our lives not really feeling like we're doing things that we're passionate about. And definitely feeling like if we did identify something that we were passionate about at one point, we maybe don't get to do that anymore, or we're always struggling to be able to do that thing and live that thing out. Augustine, the great theologian, uh, made uh, this point in his confessions, this point that everyone is ultimately for something. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning, like I said, is, is this, this word even, for, to be for something. Herod is for something. Peter and James are for something else, and it's what they're for. It's the thing they're driven towards that determines everything about the way that they act in all these situations. Augustine says this in his confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself. He's talking about God here, talking to God. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, what he doesn't say here is, you have made us to know you. You've made us to understand you. He says, you have made us for you, for yourself. We are to be for God, to like live in a direction that is towards him, to pursue him. And this is what Augustine is saying. He's saying, uh, our heart, because you've made us this way, is going to be restless, right? We see that everywhere. We see restlessness everywhere we look. No matter the age of any person that we know or is in our life, we see the restlessness. And he says, it will not find rest until it rests ultimately in God. This is what Augustine says. And because Augustine's a theologian, he doesn't leave it at that, of course. He explains it much more, you know, comprehensively. Here's what he says. He says, a body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards, a stone downwards. They are acted on by their retrospective, by their respective weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured under water is drawn up to the surface to the top of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They, have, they are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended positions are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. I've been swimming with my kids a lot. And uh, there is nothing harder than to push, like a beach ball or something, down underneath the water. Um, because, I mean, to something that simple, just to take some air in a, in, a, in a ball and to push it underwater, shows you what he's talking about here. Because it's not intended to work that way, and it will fight against it. It will be restless until it's able to be where it's supposed to be. This, Augustine says, is what it is to be, uh, that this same function exists with us. We, we are going towards, we're, we're drawn towards rest. 
We're all looking for rest. We all want rest. We want the peace that comes with that. And once we have that rest, we can truly be at peace. The Bible talks about different kinds of, of love. Uh, you know, we, people who know about love, they say, oh, yeah, the Bible's got these different words for it. It's really interesting. And it is really interesting. Uh, there, there's one that we kind of, that, that we say is like the best kind. It's agape love. It's this sort of deep love of God that, that we're, we experience through him and with him. And then there's this one called eros, which is like erotic love or romantic love. That one kind of gets a bad rap because it seems like uh, it's also been perverted by, by a lot of things in this world, uh, d- this kind of desire love. And yet, uh, really, what Augustine says is he says that God intends for these things to to be ordered with each other. And what that means is that we are satisfied um, in God in both of these loves, right? Like, Like the thing that we know we're supposed to love is the thing that we love, right? The thing that we're drawn and attracted to, that we find pleasure in. That that really this is what it is to be living the way that God called us to live. We are all for something. We're oriented towards that thing. Our whole body is wrapped up in this. Our, our emotions, everything shows how true this is, right? Uh, the, if you are feeling stressed, if you're feeling sad and down, if you're feeling depressed, anxious, that is not something that's just going to exist up here in your mind. Your body is going to show it. Because we are so connected in this way that, that if we're restless, if we're, if we're drawn to something that we can't have, if we have a sense of dissatisfaction and incompleteness, that it actually affects the way that we are, are able to function physically. Right? They say like the gut is tied to the brain, and so like if you're stressed out, it's gonna, your stomach's going to feel bad, your body's going to look bad, right? I, I was, um, Ellie was talking with a friend this week, and they were kind of just talking about how, how in this time right now, as, as, as people are getting more and more discouraged and more depressed and feeling more overwhelmed, people that you're using that word disappointment, that, that, that it's so... It's so easy. It's, people are so much more quickly going to sort of a, sort of a dark place in just conversations. Like, it just, it just happens more naturally, like now. And that's true. But that's, it's not just um, because you're talking about something that's hard. You're not talking about the pandemic or you're talking about, um, about the quarantine or things like that. It's the, fact that. it's the fact that we all are sort of being weighed down by what's going on. And because of that, we see it on each other. We, 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 we feel it within our bodies, right? We experience this restlessness, this thing. Augustine makes this point when talking about God, that he starts talking about objects and gravity and all these things. Why? Because he says that this is something we can't deny and we can't fight it. We're drawn to our natural place. And if God created us to be for him, then why do we see people doing so many different things in this world? Because we're these little idol factories. We're these worshiping factories. We, we make idols and we worship whatever we can find that peace and satisfaction in. It's why we worship, people worship other gods and other ideas of gods and other things that have nothing to do with God. It's what we see in, it's what we see in Herod. We're all drawn to the truth. Whether we find it or not is what determines whether we'll actually be at rest and at peace. What we see in Peter and what we see in James is peace. We see the the restlessness that comes. And what we see in Herod, a man who seems in control, a man who's getting what he wants, 
who's pursuing and has not, not much in his way, except for a couple of people who were bothering him, we see the restlessness that comes when you don't really find that peace in God. What we read about um, in Acts here is we read about Herod. He's, he's um, to tell you a little bit about, um, okay, hang on, my slides are all messed up. I'll say this. Herod is a man who is for the people, okay? This is what he's for. And, and I would say for the people, not like in the good way, you know? He's living in a way that says, what you think of me is what I find my rest in, okay? So, so he's living in a time when your physical accomplishments don't matter as much as how they're perceived, right? Could you guys even imagine living in a time like that, right? He lives in a time where it's not how many people you conquer in battle, it's what the current emperor thinks of you and who your friends are and how good you are at getting other people around you in the areas that you're governing to submit to you and like you or, or be afraid of you and do what you say. Herod is a guy with an incredibly messed up family, an incredibly messed up life. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of different Herods in the Bible. And this guy, Herod Agrippa of Agrippa, uh, was, uh, he, he's kind of in the Herod family. His grandfather was Herod the Great, uh, the guy that we read about uh, in Jesus' time. And, uh, and his grandfather uh, killed his father. Uh, and, uh, and then Herod was like, okay, well, that's messed up. And so then he moves to Rome, which is, you know, the capital of sort of this Roman Empire. And uh, he's a guy with a Jewish descent. He's got like a grandmother who's, or like an aunt who's, who's like related to a very well-known Jewish hero. And so he's, he's kind of Jewish, and he, and he sort of obeys the laws and follows them. He, he grows up in Rome, and uh, after his, with, with his grandfather, who killed his dad, and, uh, and he then gets a bunch of debt, and he, like, gets in trouble, and he leaves Rome. And then he goes, and he lives with his uncle, who marries his sister. And believe it or not, they don't get along. He doesn't get along with his uncle, who married his sister. And so he goes back to Rome, and then he says some things that make the emperor mad, the current emperor, who's, and then the emperor throws him in jail. So Herod's in jail because he made the wrong people mad. He said some things that weren't good. Well, then here's the good news. That emperor uh, dies. He, uh, he dies, and and the new emperor's like, I don't like that old emperor, all the, and all his friends are my enemies, and all his enemies are my friends. So he goes and he gets Herod out of jail, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to make you king over something because I like that the other guy hated you and that you hated him. And so he makes Herod king over this area that has a lot of Jewish people in it, Palestine, and, and these areas north of it. So Herod is now the king of the Jews. He's the king of this area. The Roman emperor has put him in charge of it. And all he knows is this. He gets some land. And then when his uncle dies, you know, the other guy that he didn't like, he then, uh, having one less influential enemy out there in the Roman Empire, he gets more land. So his uncle dies, he gets more land. His land grows. The area that he's king over increases. And what Herod has learned basically throughout his whole life is this. Listen, uh, there, there is no sense of objective right or wrong to this guy. There is no sense of a fear of a God. There, all he knows is everything seems relative to who's in charge in Rome, what they think of me, and how much I can give them what they want. And what the emperor wanted for Herod was simple. He wanted him to keep these people at bay. 
to keep these people just kind of doing what they're doing. The areas that he was in charge of were these very important port cities on the Mediterranean. And so he can, the, the, the Roman Empire needed these places to be peaceful, to keep making them money, to keep stuff coming in from other parts of the world and going back out to other parts of the world. So he's like, Herod, the emperor's like, Herod, just keep the peace, man. Just keep it good. That's why when Jesus came, he's just trying to, they're just trying to give the Jews what they want. And this guy realized something. He realized that if he was an obedient Jew, that that was the best way to lead these people. So that's what he did. So Herod Agrippa, the guy we're reading about here, obeys the Jewish laws, worships at the temple, gives tons of money, builds amazing temples for the Jewish people. Sure, he goes and worships other gods too. He doesn't discriminate. But this guy is like the definition of pandering. This guy is going to tell these people whatever they want to hear. And so all he's trying to do is figure out how to give them what they want. Why? Because that is how he finds rest. He is for, his life's goal is to pursue whatever is going to give him the best uh, standing in the eyes of all these people, and especially this emperor. So he goes, you know what I think would make these people happy? This, this, this church that's growing, this, this Christian group, apparently they've let in these Gentiles, and I guess the Jewish people don't like the Gentiles. They're getting really mad in Jerusalem about all that stuff. Hey, you know that cult of, of, of us, of, of Judaism, those guys that were a little bit extreme and were a little bit you know, weird and did some weird things? Well, now, now they violated like the most important thing in the world to us. They've started to say that what our God wants, Jehovah wants, what, what the one God wants is for non-Jewish people to be his children as well, and that they don't have to become Jewish, right? They flip out, and Herod's like, all right, this is it. This is my chance, right? Nothing unites people like a common enemy. So he goes, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill this guy, James, and he does. He kills James. James dies. Beheads James, and, and the people, the Jews are, are ecstatic, they go, yes, good, get rid of him, right? And Herod's thinking, good, cut the head off the snake because these are all people anyway. There's no God behind this thing. He's definitely not afraid of what might be behind these people. Then he goes, hey, if you guys like James, here comes Peter. They arrest Peter. But again, because all he cares about is what the people want, he arrests Peter and doesn't kill him. He puts them in jail. It's like, dude, have you, do you know anything about the way these people work? Don't put them in jail. Don't, don't wait, you know, just take care of it now. But he puts them in jail. Why does he put them in jail? Because it's the days of unleavened bread. It's a Jewish holy day. He's like, well, hold on, hold on. Remember, okay, I got it. These are Jewish people. I want to do it the right way. I got to go buy the book because the most important thing is when this is all over, they got to go, yeah, Herod, you did it the right way. Way to go. Good job, right? We still like you. So he goes, uh, so it's not even like he doesn't, it's not even like he personally hates Peter. He personally wants Peter dead. If he did, he would just kill him. He's like, okay, fine. Put him in jail, but we're going to make sure he doesn't escape because I hear these, these Christians are pretty slippery, right? So he ties guards to him. He puts double the amount, and everybody knows at the time that if you're a guard and somebody escapes, then you get their sentence, basically, is what happens. And in this case, he kills you. Well, Peter escapes. An angel of the Lord comes and helps Peter escape, And ultimately what happens is this obviously ruins what Herod's trying to accomplish. So he leaves in disgrace. He leaves in disgrace and he moves on. He goes somewhere else. He's like, all right, you know what? I'm done with these people. I can't make them happy. I'm going to go try over here because there were some other people in coastal towns. They were upset. And, um, and if he 
uh, if he didn't, they, 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 had, they were, well, here, I'll just tell you guys what happens. We'll read it here real quick. Uh, uh, this is Augustine, where I told you I made, I messed everything up. All right, here we go. Hold on. There we go. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So after this whole thing happens, Peter, James, okay, that didn't work out. Let's move on. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Biastus. I can't see how. Blastus, the king's, I was like, I don't think that was Biastus. That's weird. Blastus, okay, that sounds, Blastus sounds much more like a regular name, right? Uh, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So these people want peace with Herod, right? He's in control. He's in power. So he comes. Now we read from Josephus, a historian, more detail on what happens here. And what he says, Josephus says, is that he comes and there's a great feast and he comes out and he says this silvery robe. And the silvery robe is all flashy and shiny and it reflects the light. Well, he comes out in the point of day when the sun is aimed directly, it's falling directly on him. And because of it, he's like shimmering with light. And because of that, and because of his great speech that he gives, the people say, this is a God, not a man. And then we read that immediately an angel of the Lord strikes him down. Because he does not give God glory, he's eaten by worms, and he breathes his last. This man, who is driven by a need to uh, have power, to be great in the eyes of these people, he will never ultimately find rest and peace as long as that's what he's seeking because the people change. You can win some over, you can't win others over, and depending on who's in control as emperor, that kind of determines everything. To find your rest in something like this is the most foolish thing that a person can do, and yet it is what most of us do is we find that, we, we find our, the thing that we're for, the thing we're moving toward is something that changes, something that is based on the opinions of other people. Even many of us who follow Jesus and are a part of the church still, uh, we may be a part of the church, but we are not for God. That is not the thing that we're driving towards, that we're finding peace in. In fact, it's one of the things that a lot of people are realizing right now as things in life are being taken away we're realizing, many of us, as the things that we're for, the things that we're pursuing and about are being taken away from us, are being limited, uh, going, where is my hope? Where is my peace? Where is my rest? Where does it come from? Do I feel restless? Or do I feel at peace, regardless of what happens, like what I see in Peter, like what I see in James? Everyone is for something, and Herod is a man for the people. The apostles, on the other hand, are for God. They are for the gospel. This is the very thing that they're for. And the incredible thing about being for God, being a part of the kingdom of God, and truly being for him, is that you find that you can have the peace now, even as you pursue him. It's not like, uh, now there will be even greater things to come. We, we read about that in scripture. And you experience this as you, as you grow in faith and find more joy, more satisfaction, more fulfillment in God. But the incredibly good thing about being for God, about living the way that we're created to live, is that you can have peace the day that you begin to follow God. You can find rest the, the moment that you begin to follow God and to give your life to him, to follow Jesus as these disciples did. And that's what we see in these men. We see men who are so at peace 
They are so at rest. They are so fulfilled in what they're doing that they want God and the gospel, those things to go out in the world. That brings them more joy than anything else. And it leads them to do things that are crazy. It's what we call passion. These men are passionate for God and for the gospel. They have already found rest and peace in him. And because of that, they can lose everything else and still be okay. This is ultimately the sign of a person who is doing well, who is at peace. Because uh, to be at peace, but to have it be dependent on something that can be taken from you, this is the thing many of us experience in life. We, we think, my restlessness now has been answered as I've, as I've been through school, as I've gotten married, as I've had kids, as I've finally gotten this job, as I find myself in this place in life that is working, as I'm finally able to express the creative desires that I have, whether it's painting or drawing, whether it's singing, whether it's playing, whether it's, uh, whether it's shaping, whether it's uh, designing, I, I, people, I'm now getting to do the thing that gives me passion and gives me peace. The only problem is you won't be able to have that thing forever because uh, the little baby that is a joy in your life that seems to f- completely fulfill you on the first day uh, will not feel that way as they get older and will not feel that way as life changes. And so we experience these glimpses of, of rest, of, of joy, of peace, but they're always fleeting. In fact, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing scarier to many people than getting to a point in life where you thought you found it and then it was gone. You thought you found it and then it went away. A lot of people get to this point in the middle of their lives where they have this crisis and that is ultimately getting to a point where they go, wait a second, I'm this far in and either I got the things I thought would bring me peace and they haven't or I still haven't gotten them, and I can see that I'm too far away to maybe ever get them in this life. It is one of the most hopeless and discouraging feelings that there is. To know that your rest and your peace are tied up in something that you can't have or in something that failed you. These men's rest and peace is in God himself. Because of that, James is killed for the sake of the gospel, the first martyr that we read about of these apostles, the first of the apostles, that is. Stephen wasn't an apostle, so to speak, and so James here is killed. Uh, One of the pillars of the early Christian church in Jerusalem, he is beheaded, and Peter is arrested. And people pray fervently. They pray that these men would be delivered. Of course they want them to be delivered. Why? So that these guys could go out and have longer lives? No. Why does it sound so devastating to us the idea that a person would be put in jail and could be killed because then your life ends and then you stop being able to pursue the thing you're trying to find rest in, right? I mean, if you haven't found it yet and you find yourself in prison looking at death, you're like, no, 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 I didn't get to do the things I wanted to do. I didn't get to find the things I wanted to find. I didn't get to achieve that thing that I was trying to achieve in my life. And so we think, why on earth would God let this happen to somebody? Why on earth? This is the question that people ask who read this passage more than anything, is why would God let James be beheaded and and let Peter get out? How does God decide how that's going to be? 
Why does Herod get to be in control? Why wouldn't God just stop all of these people from getting hurt and getting injured? All we think about is the lives that they live here, and we think what a devastation it is that these people, because we're not, we're not even sad for the church, really. We're sad for James. We're sad for the guy who got beheaded. And we're happy for Peter because he was released. The church is sad for James because they love him, but also because of what he meant to the church. The church is happy for Peter and praying for him because of what it means for the gospel and for the church. They had a completely different understanding of the value of your life here because their lives were not uh, the ways that they achieved peace and rest like many of ours are. There is nothing that seems more unfair to us than a person being cut down in their prime, being taken too early. A child dying before a parent because they've been robbed of the one chance they have of having joy and finding peace, except that's not true. Except to have peace and to have rest in God is to, you could be taken tomorrow and you've ultimately found that already and you can now only experience it more with him in the kingdom to come. Ambition is a close imposter to being for God and the gospel sometimes. You can, you can be a Christian, and you can even, even maybe think that you're for God and the gospel, but it's really your own ambition. The, the ambition is a very tricky, powerful, deceptive thing. Ambition hijacks any other thing. Ambition is like this, this engine that you can just dump into any car, and it'll make it run, but it'll make it go somewhere else. And, and ambition can hijack any, any vehicle, any passion, any, any love of anything, any person, any relationship. Ambition can take anything and then turn that thing to the ends of, of myself. It is why the Bible refers to selfish ambition. Really, that's the only time ambition is referred to in the Bible. Selfish ambition is, is to say even, oh, I'm a Christian, I love God, I love my faith, but I, 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 know, I know so many people in, in ministry even, who people would look at and say, well, you're, you're in ministry. Your life's work is God. You must be finding that rest and peace and yet are driven by ambition because it's simply the vehicle by which we can be loved by people. Because it, especially in America, a place where uh, so many people can believe and, and it can bring you benefits. What does it look like now to be for God the way that these men were? The way that Peter was, was finding his rest in peace in God and was therefore okay with what God would do. That, that celebrated and rejoiced when he was freed from prison but then goes into hiding so that he can continue to what? Lead the church. Ultimately, these apostles would all be martyred. And yet... Why do they continue to do this thing that brings them so much pain and suffering? And why are they so happy while they're doing it? Because they find rest, they find peace in something other than just themselves and their own comfort. It is so simple, this idea of being for God, but it is so incredibly difficult and sacrificial 
It's not that it's a complicated issue. It's that it's a hard thing to do, to not be about ourselves, to find our rest and our peace in God, to let ourselves move towards Him. I mean, the Bible tells us that we are naturally, um, that, that God has created us, and so while the flesh and sin get in the way and, and, and create this sort of enslavement that we experience, that we are still drawn to God. And yet, uh, we allow so many things to get in the way of this. And it means different things for any person. I mean, it, you might be somebody who's hearing this who's like, I've never really surrendered my life to God. I've never actually acknowledged that He is the one that I am for. I like Him in this compartment of my life. Do you know how many people I've talked with, Christian people who like sort of, um, I, I've talked to people who are like coaches, life coaches, and, and people who, who help others, uh, you know, do better in life, and, and, they, and they always, and they'll break down your life into these components. They'll go, you know, you've got your physical, you've got your spiritual, you've got your family, you've got your, your professional, right? You've got your emotional, and, and God is great. God is a, we need God. He's a vital component to a well-balanced life, Right? but he kind of belongs in that one place. Well, what about the fact that God routinely calls people to do things that sort of <laughs> bleed into these other areas and sometimes cost in these areas? You might be somebody who just has God there in this compartment somewhere, but doesn't actually see that true rest is in him, not just a balanced life that he's a part of, and that God doesn't really work that way at all. In fact, the longer you try to live your life that way, you're going to find yourself frustrated. You're going to find yourself uh, confused by a lot of what the Bible talks about, and you're going to ultimately find yourself spiritually dead, like a vine disconnected from the branch. You will no longer be able to grow, and you'll look at other people and wonder, why do they have passion? Why do they have love? Why do they have these things? Why, do they, why, do they, uh, why are they resilient in these situations? Why are they joyful in these situations? Why are they fulfilled in these situations? It's because God is not just a component of the life that they have. It's because they have surrendered themselves fully to him. They recognize God is what I am created to be chances are and this is just statistically okay I'm not and, and maybe not statistically in the room I don't know but this is just statistically if you are if you think you are for God statistically speaking you're actually for something else Jesus found this and the followers that came to him this was true any time of the church your politics your patriotism your family your comfort, your survival, your ambition. These things are all things that we are for, that we can be for, that are not actually God himself. Our identity gets wrapped up in the things that we do, even in the church. And we begin to be people who only see ourselves performing a specific function in the church, a specific function in our relationships. And we say, I am for God, but in all reality, we are for other things. How do you know what you're for? It's very easy. What happens when you lose a thing? And are you devastated? And are you no longer able to be at peace? Now, of course, of course, a parent who loses a child will be devastated and will have a hole in their life that, uh, that 
that, that of course, anybody whose marriage falls apart, uh, anybody who, uh, who loses their job and all of their possessions, anybody who is, is sick or dies, uh, dies too young, we would say, anybody in that situation, no matter how much you love God, these things hurt, these things are suffering, these things are lost because we find joy in these things, many of these things. But... Uh, Many of us say, I am for God, and yet really, he's the component still. So there are those who know that they haven't fully embraced God as the thing that they're for. They think he can be one of many things they pursue. Uh, many who, who think that they've made that choice have, have simply then allowed ourselves to still be about these other things. And we maybe say, because, you know, I work God into that somehow. I, I, I've... I've talked to so many people. In fact, one of the things that I often tell people early in the faith or in church is, uh, as, as they're in church for sort of like the long haul, hopefully, is I say, like, whatever you do in the church is going to change. However you serve in the church, whatever, in the same way that any place in your life, any life stage is going to change, right? And, and you have to know that that's how life works. We, the only reason why many of us embrace these stages in life is because we literally have no choice, right? You, that's the way time works. That's the way life works, right? People grow up, things change, you move on, you either go with it or you basically suffer and you lament the whole time. And there are people that do that. Uh, I say it's the same in the church, that, that, I, that no, if we are for God, it is likely that we will do different things in our service to him, that there are times that we will uh, use different gifts. There are, there are times in our life when following God means actually walking further away from that thing that we felt passionate about before that our identity was in before. It is, it is wrong to say that the desires of my heart are the same as what God wants for me because my heart doesn't even agree with itself most of the time. You can love two different things. <clears throat> you, can, you can love two things that do not go together and do not work well with one another and be stuck because your heart doesn't actually pick one thing. We can't actually trust that as the, as the way to tell us. In fact, people who are searching for that will usually be on a search for their entire lives until they just give up, realizing that's not the way it works. Wisdom is recognizing that to be for God is to be able to be so fulfilled by God and to find joy in Him that you can release and let go of other things. There were years in my life where I worked with, with, with youth and, and I found so much joy and so much passion and so much fulfillment in what God did in those times. And as I got better and I got better and, 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 and more competent in my ability to work with them, eventually then God would call me to something else. And I'd go, God, why in the world would you do something like that? And you're probably thinking, well, maybe you weren't that good at it. You know, maybe you actually were getting worse and worse. And I don't know, maybe I was. But they said I was cool and I think I was cool. But then God would call me to something else and I'd go, but wait a second, God. Well, if I'm for God and I'm not for that thing, right? There are, there are people that I know who are creative people and yet they just don't have a way to be for God and to express that in the way that they desire. I talk with people who, who, who want recognize that they want to invest everything in the well-being of their family, but recognize that to follow God, to truly be for God, means 
that I am ultimately investing everything, even my family, in the kingdom of God. And that at times that's going to mean even a sacrifice for what seems best for us, what seems most comfortable, most secure, safest for us. What we see in these apostles is men who are so fulfilled in what they have found, the rest that they found in God, that they are able to have peace, to put their lives at risk. There are, you see this happen again and again anytime the church is growing and spreading. You see it happen in, in, in China um, over the last hundred years as evangelical and as Christianity has grown, has exploded in China. And this underground church, house church movement, as people have had to live much of what we read about in Acts, you've seen these people's lives, these pastors and these apostles, these evangelists come up and you hear about them, men who make the very same choices to actually pursue something that makes their life very hard, and yet they have these words, these statements, sometimes they write these letters and they put out these things that say, I am so filled with joy. I am so willing to keep doing what it is that I'm doing, even if it means I die in this prison cell. I had all these examples of of people that I was going to read through and talk with you guys about, but I'm going way too long on this, and so I want to use the most uh, current one. Uh, There's a there's a man named Wang Yi, and he's the pastor of a church, and a few years ago, he uh, was arrested along with 100 people from his church, one of the largest sort of um, Christian churches in China. He was arrested for, you know, subverting the state authority. Well, he had had a letter written, and he had instructed his family, or people of his church, to release this letter to the media 48 hours after if he was ever arrested, because he thought he would get arrested. You go, why, if you thought what you were doing would get you arrested? Would you keep doing it and prepare a letter? Because what he finds rest and what he finds joy in is not staying out of jail. It is not how well his life goes. It is not, he doesn't even tell himself, oh, well, you know, obviously I've got to be out of jail to preach the gospel. Well, that's unfortunately not what you read about in the Bible. So he just writes a letter and says, release this. And in the letter that he released, um, he's been sentenced to five years in prison. And... um, possibly 15 years, for subverting state authority. He said this in the letter that he wrote. He said, there is a higher authority than their authority, and there is a freedom that cannot be held by them, full of Jesus Christ. He says, the authority in my life is not the emperor, it's not the government, it's not the communist party, and it is also not the masses of people the authority that is higher, the only one that I can be held by is Jesus Christ. He says, as a pastor, my disobedience is part of the gospel mission. The great mission of Christ requires our great resistance to the world. The purpose of resisting is not to change the world, but to witness another world. What these men do and women do, what these missionaries and these evangelists and these people in, in, in their own homes do is not something they're doing to make the world itself simply a better place. It's not something they do to gain fame. It's not something they do to gain a sense of fulfillment that they did a good job and they can go to bed feeling good. They do it to witness another world. Their rest, their joy is found in something that can be seen more clearly the more they profess Jesus. 
when you're for God, when you are fulfilled by him, you don't want to just sit on what you already have and find peace only in that. You have glimpses of what is to come, of glimpses of something you can see more clearly. The more that you are living in him, the more that you're telling others about him, the more that you're pursuing his gospel. And rather than grow cynical and calloused as you even as live your life and as you see more of the evils of the world and more of the things let, that let you down that you thought you'd find your hope in and your joy in, instead of that you find more hope and you find more peace and you find greater excitement in simply living out this love for for God and bringing it to other people. There is such fulfillment in that that we take joy in it. Even people who die in prison cells, even people who um, are tortured, even people who have lives that are way shorter than what we'd consider to be fair. We are all for something. Some of us know we're not for God. What I'd say to that, what the Bible says to that is, you will never find rest and you will never find peace until you find it in him. And my prayer for you is that you will not get that thing. Because if you do, it will only prolong the time that it takes for you to see that rest can't really be found there, only in God. You might be somebody who thinks, no, I am for God. And yet, as things are taken away from you in your life, as you suffer in life, as you, um, as you live this life, you feel like, I don't see that rest, I don't see that peace, I don't see that joy at all. To that, the question is, are you for God? Are you for something else? Let's pray. Father, you are so beautiful and good, and it is so easy when we talk about, I guess when we talk about religion, to make ourselves feel guilty, to think that the job of church or the job of Sundays is to come and talk about the things we do wrong and talk about how we got to be better and talk about how, come on, we know we should, we know we need to, we know we ought to, and then we all go away feeling a sense of guilty obligation because we don't want to be bad and do the wrong thing. Lord, that is not how the people who started this church and moved forward this church spoke about you and your kingdom. They were filled with a joy and a love and a peace that was so great and overwhelming that it caused them to go out and to live lives that were radically different, God. And so we come together here this morning to be reminded of who you are, how good you are, how loving and great and fulfilling you are, and it gives us confidence. It gives us the assurance that we can let go of those other things and we can find our peace in you, God. Would you help us do that today? It's in your name we pray. Amen.